Hey, and welcome to Bread. We're an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in Los Angeles. This talk is from a current series on the book of Revelation that we've titled, The End of Fear. We hope it serves you well. If this is your first time at Bread, welcome. Um, we're so glad that you're here. As you will hear us say again and again, you are here on your own terms. And feel free to check us out for as long or as little as you'd like. Um, we're happy that you're here. But we have been on a series going through the book of Revelation for the last few weeks. And we learned a lot about what this book is, what it isn't, and how we've mistakenly misunderstood parts of this book. Um, this book is about Jesus and what he's doing. And if you have missed any of the previous talks, I recommend going back and listening to those um, because we are almost done with the series. Um, but if you are like me, and my first exposure to the book of Revelation came through the History Channel, um, if you remember that. Um, but I remember being a 12-year-old and watching, you know, going through the TV guide and seeing um, on the guide next, like on the History Channel little tab, it said, Revelation, is this the end of the world? And I thought, I need to watch that. And so I opened it and, you know, I watched the series or whatever it was and looking back, I realized that the documentary focused on the middle part of the book, on the scenes that had bulls and trumpets and beasts and dragons, and it left out the pastoral opening of the book and the climactic restorative end. But more than anything, what this documentary was interested in was answering the question, what will the end of the world look like? And I brought a clip of a documentary that's similar to the one I saw as a 12-year-old. This is it here. It's the story of a unique and terrifying book. You have beasts, the devil at work. Its visions have inspired and scared for 2,000 years. Many see in the pages of the book of Revelation an uncanny series of predictions, global warming, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, war in the Middle East. There is no more perfect battleground in the world than this. Some believe the book is a guide to one of the greatest riddles of all, the date for the end of the world. Could the book of Revelation hold such a secret? New evidence has revealed that the key to the mystery of this last book in the Bible lies in the dust of modern-day Turkey, and that the infamous number of the beast may not be 666 after all. So that was a glimpse into my childhood. Um, but as a teenager, you can imagine what this documentary did to me. It made me afraid. It made me not want to get left behind. I thought, you know, I don't want to be left on earth when it blows up like that scene. It made me think that God was really just interested in my performance. And it kind of portrayed God as this 
you know, cosmic child with a magnifying glass, holding it over earth, burning bad humans like ants. And what happened with me, and I think what often happens with cultural interest in the book of Revelation, is that the book becomes isolated from the greater story. It becomes detached from the wider parts of the Bible, and parts of the end become elevated over the rest of the biblical library. And when this happens, we may not realize that the entire story arc of the Bible finds its climax in Revelation, and particularly in chapters 21 and 22. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, they move towards the scenes in this passage that we'll read today. So this is Revelation 21, 1. It says, I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Skipping ahead to verse 22. It says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb are its lamp. The nations walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought to it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, contrary to the documentary, the question that Revelation is answering isn't, is this the end of the world? But it is the completion of it. It is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. It is a completion of restoration for humanity. But first, let's take a step back. Let's look at how we got here. Let's look at the big picture. There are six acts or movements of the Bible. And if you have been with us um, studying the... Or, in the How to Read the Bible course, then this will sound familiar to you. But there are six acts, and the first one is creation and the royal task. And this is Genesis, um, Genesis 1 and 2. This is when God creates the world. He speaks um, the cosmos into existence. He makes man and, and, and he makes Adam and Eve. Um, creation is good, and God reigns with Adam and Eve in the world. But then the next part 
is the rebellion and fallout. This is when humans are deceived. They decide to decide. They decide what right and wrong is, um, and they experience the consequences of sin. And this goes throughout um, throughout biblical history until um, we get into this section where God makes a covenant with Israel. And this is where the restoration process begins. God shows Abraham his loving kindness, and in doing so, it's extended to the world. And he makes a promise to Abraham that everything will be restored. And so this is where the restoration process begins. But then, Israel fails. They... um, they fail, they get mixed up with other gods, they get mixed up with other nations, um, and they lose sight of the mission that God has called them into. And so we get Jesus to um, reestablish the restoration that God is doing. And in doing so, he defeats sin and death and the grave. And then we get to Acts, um, and the letters, and this is the spreading of kingdom people. This is, this is where we hear of um, the, mo- the movement of Jesus growing and changing people's lives, and it is the restoration that is, con- it's the restoration process continued through Jesus and his spirit-filled people, and it is where we find ourselves in history today. But then, Revelation is the climactic end of the story. It is the completion of this story. We see the return of the king, the return of Jesus, and the renewal of all things, where restoration is finally fulfilled. People live with God, and they, again, are able to reign as as Adam and Eve did in the garden. And so revelation isn't necessarily the end of the world, It's an apocalypse, and apocalypse literally means to reveal, to pull back the curtain, to see behind the stage, but also to look ahead at the next scene. And in this passage, we may ask, well, what is is being unveiled? What is being shown to us? What are we seeing? And what, what it is, is God's complete restoration and intimacy with his people. As I said, Revelation isn't necessarily the end of the world. It's the end of an order. It means that we're not subject to the way things are forever. And I think of when I finished my undergrad, and if you went to school, you may relate to this, but that feeling that you get when you no longer have to turn in any papers. You know, you don't have to show up to class. on. You don't have to answer to professors. Um, I went to a Bible college, so I had to go to chapel on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, which is too much chapel, and I didn't have to go to chapel anymore, and so I was thrilled, Um, but but this same idea of this structure and system that I was in as a student no longer has power over me as a graduate or as an alumni, and similarly, the end of the order means that empire influence Death, loss, darkness, all come to an end with God bringing in the new heaven and the new earth. 
And so John writes about this marrying of these two seemingly separate worlds, the world of heaven where God dwells and where his will is done, and the world of earth where there is brokenness and decay. But notice that John doesn't say anything about the earth being destroyed. Passing away can refer to an expiration of the current age, of the current order, and unlike the globe being blown up in the video, earth isn't destroyed in some fiery explosion, but it is actually transformed. It is transformed by the arrival of heaven. And the idea of the rapture, which I grew up with and was terrified of, it implied that the world is bad and that God will get us out of it. But notice here that people aren't taken up to heaven, but rather heaven comes down to earth. And this is the thrust of the Christian message. It's that God brings heaven down to humans because God loves the world and he declared creation is good. And so Revelation doesn't tell us that God is getting rid of the earth, but he simply says that heaven and earth will be one again. And and that imperial Rome-like power in all of its forms is being replaced with the redemptive, dignifying land power of Jesus. And so not only will heaven and earth be one again, but there will no longer be any sea. This is verse uh, 2, I believe. And to take this, if you take this literally, that's pretty disappointing, especially if you like surfing, like Kelsey, um, or if you like sunsets on the beach. To hear that there will be no sea in this new transformed world is very depressing. But if we recall what the sea represented for the ancients, this is actually good news. Rome, with all of its power, came through the sea. Also, the sea was where monsters were said to have lived. It's where Leviathan, the great sea creature in the Old Testament, dwelled. It's, the sea represented death and fear and uncertainty, and it's why Jonah's company was so afraid, and it's why the disciples are amazed when Jesus calms down the sea. Because death, like the sea, could not be conquered, it could not be tamed, it could not be removed. And yet here in Revelation, death and all that the sea represents is no more. I was at a funeral shortly after Christmas. Um, My mother-in-law's brother passed away. Um, And it was the closest I've been to death. Um, since my aunt passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like for my mother-in-law. But even being around it affected me. And that's the thing about death, is that when it happens, it's like everything around it is touched by it. And it was pretty somber. Uh, pretty somber. I felt upset. I felt, you know, upset that this was a reality that we lived in. I felt sad that there was nothing I could do about it. I felt sad that I had no words to say. um, Because death is out of our control. Death, like the sea, it cannot be tamed. And here in Revelation, not only is it tamed, but it's removed. Jesus rids the world of all death and decay. 
today in part, but this day in Revelation gives us a glimpse of what, it will, of what it will be like when it is fully gone. And in the arrival of heaven and earth, it means that the tragic divorce between the two is undone. They are reconciled, they are transformed. It is what we all long for. It's this picture of it's a picture of the paradise that Adam and Eve lost, but Jesus reclaims. It is the country that it's the country and city that Abraham was looking for, but that Jesus builds. You and I were made for this. We long for it when we see injustice happen. We crave it when we experience loss. We cry out for it when our hearts are broken. And it is what Jesus is inviting us into. And the thing that makes it what it is isn't just the polished streets and the rivers running through it, but it is that God is fully present. It's that God is there face to face with his people. And so what is being unveiled here in Revelation is also God's intimacy with his people. But what does intimacy mean exactly? Firstly, the church is depicted as a beautiful bride, which is contrasted with the adulterous woman of Rome. And the bride implies intimacy. But then we hear these words in verse 3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Does, that, does this sound familiar to any of us? Show of hands. Okay, a couple of us. Yeah. Well, we have read this before because it is throughout the biblical narrative. This is Genesis 17, 8. It says, The whole land of Canaan... Where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession for you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Exodus 29, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all of their heart. Jeremiah tw- uh, 37, sorry, Jeremiah 32, They will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. And then 2 Corinthians quotes, um, and it says this, "What What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so the entire story of the Bible points to this moment when you and I are fully present with God. When the, and what Revelation tells us is that God will be face-to-face with his people, that the fullness of his presence will be permanent. It will never fade. You and I were made to experience the presence of God. Not just know about it, but to actually feel it and to be affected by it in the most beautiful ways. And so not only is God restoring the world, but he's also restoring intimacy with us. He's restoring intimacy 
with us. And I, I understand that if our view of God has been informed by pictures like what we saw in the documentary, then we may not want anything to do with this God. But let's see what kind of God he is. This is what we, this is who he is. This is what he does just in reading Revelation 21. He is the one who does away with all forms of evil, both in the world, in us. He doesn't leave us to our own destruction. He wipes away our tears. He ends death and mourning. He is the God who loves what he's created. And he sent Jesus the Lamb to renew it and restore it. And the world needs restoring. The world needs restoring because of what it's done to people. And we need his presence because of what has been done to us and what we do to ourselves. And so the world may leave us feeling like we're damaged goods. It may feel us leave it may leave us feeling like we're unworthy of God's presence. It may feel like we're the only ones. Like we're isolated, like we're incapable of receiving or giving love and to this Jesus says, you're not damaged goods. God loves you, and he cares for you, and he can put you back together, and you're not alone. Or some of us may have had really rough experiences, things that we may not have told anyone else. We may have had to do things that we thought would keep us safe, but maybe we've hurt others. And so we may feel regret or shame or disappointment, but we're not beyond God's love. He forgives and he takes away the guilt. Or you may be even feeling like nothing's working out for you right now. But in Revelation, we hear again and again that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was, who is, and is to come. He is the beginning and the end, and he's the one writing your story. He's the one in control. He's the one looking out for you. And even when it feels like nothing is working, he is always working. And his presence is always there. This morning, um, as we were praying in the pre-service prayer back in the chapel there, um, there were some prophetic words, and um, it would be good for us to hear these. Uh, Casey and Joe, do you mind coming up? Intimacy is about not only us being open and um, talking to God, but it's also God talking to us. And so these are some words that we heard um, from this morning for our church. So Casey? Yeah, I just got a sense uh, as we were praying this morning that um, God was saying, know that I am the Lord your God Almighty, who was and is to come. And then in that saying, come and see and taste that I am good. And just felt like he was saying that to all of us this morning. Thank you. Joe? Um, I just felt like God was saying um, that he's just not going to leave you. He's not going to let you down. He will not desert you. And... Um, He's making all things new. Yep, thank you. 
And as I was um, just preparing for this talk, um, what I felt God showing me um, was that there, there may be someone here who's thought extensively about suicide um, to the point where maybe there's even been a plan. Um, and the words I heard were that this is not the end. This is not the end. And Jesus sees you and he loves you. And this is what intimacy is about. It's about God meeting us. It's about God speaking to us. Intimacy is welcoming God's presence so that we can hear his voice. It means knowing God's character and seeking his thoughts and perspectives. And it's also allowing God into the areas that we're proud of and also the areas that we may feel like hiding. I'm in, um, married, um, and what I've learned is that intimacy isn't just the romantic dates, but it's also things like doing laundry. <laughs> it's allowing one another to see um, the dirty parts of our lives. And I think in all honesty, we can be afraid of intimacy because we may not like what can be found. And shame comes from a sudden exposure, from being exposed without any sense of preparation on terms that aren't our own. But intimacy comes from allowing ourselves to be seen for who we really are, that God sees us. And as he sees us, he still says, I love you. And you're the one I want. And so intimacy comes from feeling safe. And this is why we can feel safe with him. We can only experience intimacy when we feel safe. And the promise of God is that you are safe with him. He's safe, but he's also powerful. That's the thing. And he needs to be powerful if he's the one redeeming the world. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And so, you're my people, I am your God, is one of the most beautiful and necessary things that we need to hear if we want to grow in intimacy with Jesus. And this passage gives us a glimpse of what's ahead. We may be tempted to run and hide and wait for Jesus to come back, or we may just count all of this void and refuse to believe that this makes any difference for our day-to-day but these words are worth holding on to because they don't solely belong in the future, but it is a present reality in the process of becoming, meaning that it's already happening and that one day it will reach fulfillment. It is both present and still arriving, or as you've heard us say, it is now and not yet. And we can experience this future reality today. In part to various degrees, we get glimpses here, appearances there, manifestations from time to time. We hear of people getting healed, um, things like that. And we look for the day when God's presence will be permanent and when we will see God face to face. And so this is all great. The idea of it sounds great, but how do we respond today? How do, what do we do with this? 
And I think we need to come back to the first word of verse 3. When John says, look, look, we need to see again. Some of us are, I think this, this world and this moment has a tendency of making us nearsighted. Where we're seeing what is immediately in front of us. And when we, when we see, when we give attention to these things, it can, it can bring along with it anxiety and depression and hopelessness. But I think God is calling us to a perspective that looks ahead a little bit. Not too far ahead, but when we look periodically ahead, when we see what God is doing, when we give attention to what is at work, when we turn towards God, we can see what he's doing and the product of that is joy. There's so many things that are demanding our short-term attention, but Revelation calls us to look at Jesus, to see what God is creating, to look again, and to do so periodically. And as we look ahead, joy comes. One of my favorite parables that Jesus says um, ends with the line, come and share in your master's joy. Joy is something that God is inviting us into. Joy is something that God invites us to share in. And I'm reminded that God is the most joyful person. And when we're in his presence, that joy rubs off on us. It's like it sticks to us. It changes the way that we feel. It changes the way that we respond. And so when we periodically look ahead... It means that we can rejoice. And we can have joy because the Lamb, Jesus, has already won. The kingdom is here, it's coming, and we can experience the love and comfort of God knowing that he's in control. And we can celebrate the fact that God is redeeming and renewing the world, our communities, us, And we are invited to celebrate in that death is already defeated. Darkness is already defeated. And we need joy, but it's not something that we muster up. It's not something that we, you know, put on our kitchen walls and say, okay, I'm going to choose that. But it is something that God invites us into. It is a byproduct of being in God's presence. When we are around the Spirit of God, when we are in His presence, joy rubs off on us. And I want to end with, this is um, a passage out of Isaiah. I want to end with what Isaiah says. He says, See, I will create a new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And so joy comes from looking ahead. Joy comes from knowing that the Lamb has already won. Joy comes from knowing that everything is being renewed. That even when we experience a loss or a failure, it's not the end of the story. Because Jesus has already won. 
And so let us come into that joy. Let us experience more of that joy. Let us open ourselves to the presence of God so that he can deposit that joy. Because joy isn't something that is necessarily found in self-help books. It isn't necessarily found in a good TED Talk. It is something found in the presence of God. And it is why when we gather here on Sundays, we worship. Because we enter into the presence and there's something so mysterious but so beautiful that happens. Joy is a product of that. Joy is a product of God's presence. And if, if maybe we've been sold a picture of God that is somber, maybe we've been sold a picture of God that is um, fearful, but I feel like what God wants to do this morning is he wants to release joy. He wants to release faith. He wants to say to you, this isn't the end. But I am making all things new. And so have we lost joy? Have we lost faith? God is inviting us to see him again, to turn our eyes on him, to look up at what it is that he's doing. And John is clear here that the gates of the kingdom are open, but it comes to those who don't exclude themselves from it. It comes to those who welcome the lamb, to those who resist empire influence. And so if we've been closed off to God, let us welcome him in. Let us welcome his spirit and what he wants to do in us. Let us not exclude ourselves from what he's doing. Instead, let us look again. Let us reconsider. Let us realize that God is the most joyful person, and he wants to share that joy with us.